chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, now uh, we come and, and we marvel at how the Apostle Paul understands how uh, the truth of the gospel should impact how we live our lives. And Lord, our desire, our prayer this morning is that as a result of our time in your word, we would be more faithful in doing just that. That, Father, we would not just be people who know the truth, but we would be those who faithfully and to the glory of your name seek to live that truth out. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. On May 27th, 1995, at roughly 7 o'clock in the evening, Amy and I became husband and wife. One moment, we were standing in front of our family and our friends at the Carlisle Avenue Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky, not married. And then, our friend Paul House declared us husband and wife, and suddenly we're married. Our reality, who we were fundamentally changed in that instant. But that particular reality took a while to set in. It was strange to think of myself as a husband. Those first days of marriage, those of you who have been married know this, uh, it's a bit disconcerting to wake up and have the other person there looking at you. You have to get used to this other person being around like all the time. Amy has this weird need to scare people. She did that to me. I talk to myself. I talk to myself a lot. I did that to her. I would hear from the other room, who are you talking to? Myself. Then roughly six months after we got married, so we're sort of getting used to all this, and then we come back to Nebraska for Thanksgiving. And so I walk into what was then our room one night after we were, we were getting ready for bed, and I remember thinking my mother would lose her mind if she knew I had a girl in here. Six months in, 
and it was still hard to grasp this new reality. We were married, but we needed to become who we are. See, I became a husband in an instant, but in so many ways, I'm still becoming Amy's husband. I'm still seeking to become not just the husband I'd like to be, but the husband that she deserves. Well, friends, it's the same way with our walk with Jesus. We become something we were not in an instant. The Holy Spirit gives us new life where there was only a cold, dead heart. We were once dead in our sin, but were made alive with Jesus Christ. But becoming who we are in Christ is a process. And theologians refer to that as progressive sanctification. As we move into Colossians chapter 3, Paul is now going to turn his attention from the supremacy and the sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's going to turn from from telling us about the gospel to now he's going to tell us what it means to live the gospel out in a way that is faithful, in a way that's God-honoring. In other words, he's going to tell us what is our big idea for this morning. And you see it in your outline, you see it on the screen in front of you. Become who you already are in Christ. Become who you already are in Christ. Two points we want to make this morning. Uh, You see them there in your outline. The first one is who you are in Christ. Now, in this next section of Colossians, Paul's going to move into an explanation of what it means to live in the world and do so faithfully when you possess the truth of the gospel. And that's going to bring us then to a good news, bad news scenario. He's talking about Christian discipleship. How do I live as a Jesus follower? Here's the good news of what Paul thinks about Christian discipleship. He views it relationally. Our faith must work in the real world with real people. It isn't just about grasping certain doctrinal truths, but it needs to, and it can, and it will show up in the way in which we interact with the people who are in our lives. That's the good news. Now, here's the bad news. The bad news is that Paul thinks of Christian discipleship primarily in terms of our relationships. You're saying, wait, I thought that was the good news. Well, it is. It's the good news, and it's the bad news. See, it's the bad news because people are messy. We never know how they're going to respond to us. Furthermore, we don't always know how we're going to respond to them. And even the people that we love the most, the people with whom we have the closest and most intimate relationships, those are the people who can hurt us the most. Yesterday, uh, we unfortunately had a sort of front row seat uh, for it's the second time now in the 12 years we lived in our house. It's the second time we've seen this in our neighborhood. Um, a spouse who had moved out, coming and getting all of their stuff that was still left in the house because the divorce was now final. What do you do? Uh, We hadn't seen this particular neighbor in a while. Do you go out and say, hey? 
Well, you grieve. And you mourn. And that's the reality of our relationships, isn't it? Sometimes they're wonderful. Sometimes they're life-giving. And sometimes it feels like they're just going to crush us. And Paul says it's in that context that our walk with Jesus needs to show up the most. That Christian discipleship is primarily about relationships. So Paul doesn't just want us to have a command of the truth, but he wants us to have the ability to live that truth with wisdom and winsomeness across a variety of relational situations. And that's what the rest of the book is really going to be about. This morning, he's talking about our relationship with Jesus and how that should show up in our everyday life. And then he's going to turn to, uh, beginning, it kind of overlaps, beginning in verse 9 through verse 17 of chapter 3, he's going to talk about our relationship with and our relationships within the local church. How are we related to the local church and what are our relationships like with other believers in our local body? And then in chapter 3, verses 18 to 21, he's going to talk about our relationships within the home. In chapter 3, 22 through chapter 4, 1, he's going to talk about the kinds of relationships we have in our work and in our vocational lives. And then just to make sure that he doesn't miss anybody, in chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, Paul's going to talk about how we ought to relate to those who are outside of Christ. How should we be, how should we relate to those who are not of Christ, but those who are in the world? Now, uh, Again, this is sort of a good news, bad news thing. I uh, This past week, I got a book recommendation from a couple people whom I, I trust. Uh, they're avid readers. I like the stuff they read. We have kind of similar tastes in books. I, I am kind of a diva, kind of a snob when it comes to book recommendations. Uh, if I don't know you, or I'm just snooty enough to be like, if I don't trust your taste in books, please don't recommend a book to me. I'll try to be kind, but no guarantees. And this past week, two people whom I trust have recommended a book to me. But here's the problem. While the author has a tremendous grasp of Christian doctrine, the author is a wonderful scholar, the author has a great uh, grasp of the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, the author is also a jerk. And I know it because I know this particular person personally. I have been in situations in which they have been, uh, let's just say, unkind. And they've been petty. And they've lied about people and events that I have a firsthand knowledge of. Well, friends, Paul wants us to understand that that's not the kind of Christianity he's trying to teach us. You can have this wonderful command and grasp of the truth, but if you are a relational dumpster fire, Paul's going to argue, hey, you know what? You don't really get the gospel. They have to come together. In other words, uh, you can't say that you love Jesus and just be a jerk. For the record, I hate that some days. Because there are days in which I really want to be a jerk. And honestly, there are days in which I am a jerk. And this text reminds me that I need to repent. 
of that kind of jerkiness. So, first, who we are in Christ. It's interesting to note, isn't it, that in the day and age in which we live, we want to talk about identity. Identity is all the rage. But let's note in our text for this morning, Paul reminds us that our identity is given to us. It's not self-determined. Did you see that? If you have been raised with Christ, and then he's going to go on to say, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. And then when Christ, who is your life, appears, Paul is telling us that our identity is God-given and our identity, if we are Christians, is with Christ. That's why he says in verse 1, you've been raised with Christ. In verse 3, you've died with Christ. And then again in verse 4, you will be glorified with Christ. That's your identity. That's who you are. In other words, all that Christ possesses, you also possess. Not fully, not yet. There is a now and a not yet. We don't have all that we're going to have yet. But the Bible teaches us that once we were dead, but now we've been made alive with Christ. Thanks to the work of the Holy Spirit, you are a new creation. Think about Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. The whole point of that was, hey, Nicodemus, you have to be born again. The great promise of the new covenant is that God is going to take out your heart of stone and by His Spirit, He's going to give you a heart of flesh. That's who we are in Christ. And there's coming a day then in which we're going to be glorified with Christ. Or as John reminds us in 1 John chapter 3, we're going to be like Him, for we will see Him as He is. Now, do we have that fully? No, we don't. But what we do have is the wonderful hope of Easter. We have the historical fact that even though Christ died, God resurrected him. God raised him. And Paul says, what was true of Jesus is going to be true of those who are in Jesus. That if you are in Christ, what happened to the Lord Jesus is exactly what's going to happen to you. If you have died with Christ, you will be raised with Christ. And when you are raised with Christ, you will be glorified with Christ. Friends, that's your identity. Not your race. Not your gender. Not your political party. That's your identity. And it's beautiful. And it's lovely. And it's far greater and much stronger than any of those things that I just mentioned. So then we need to become who we are. We know who we are in Christ. We've died with him. We've been raised with him. We're going to be glorified with him. Our identity has been given to us. So Paul says then, hey, listen, uh, you need to become who you are in the same way that I'm becoming, hopefully, a husband, a better husband, the kind of husband I would like to be and the kind of husband my wife deserves. Paul says, listen, you're in the process of actually becoming who you are in Christ. 
Now, it was common in the ancient world for adherents of certain groups to have standards of conduct. So, for example, if you were a mason, this is the way masons conducted themselves. Or if you were a tanner, this is how tanners would conduct themselves. Or if you went and worshipped in this particular temple, then this is what uh, the, the, the folks who worshipped this particular god, these were the things that characterized them. Everyone had particular standards of conduct. This idea that you can just make it up as you go and nobody cares would have been completely foreign to the Apostle Paul and to the church in Colossae. I know that we buck against this idea that the Bible is somehow giving us a standard of conduct. So think about it in this way. Uh, what Paul's saying here is, hey, you need to cultivate a family resemblance. Several years ago, uh, unfortunately, it was, it was Amy was uh, going to Kentucky quite a bit. Uh, her mom was not well and ultimately uh, passed away. And one evening we were coming back. We had something in Omaha. We were coming back with the kids and we called Amy and we were all in the car and we were talking. And she's like, so what are you, what are you guys going to do for dinner? And I was very proud of myself because we were going to do biscuits and gravy. Now, if you ever get invited to biscuits and gravy in our house, you'll know that you have arrived uh, because biscuits and gravy is the meal that we usually don't share because it includes country ham. And country ham is a valuable commodity in the McClellan household. Uh, my father has never had biscuits and gravy in our household. I say that because he's not here. If he was, he would fuss about it. So I said to my wife, I'm going to do biscuits and gravy. Her question was, how are you going to do the biscuits? I said, I have a can. There was a pause. The next words out of my sweet wife's mouth were this. Not in my house. Now, I won't bring up the fact that she uses prefab pizza crust every Friday that I'm not there. But let's just note in our home, we don't do canned biscuits. In the home I grew up in, if you wanted to be disinherited, you could drink Pepsi. Otherwise, we were a Coke family. Every family has them. We all have these resemblances that get cultivated because of the home and the culture in which we grow up. Paul is saying part of becoming who you are is he's calling us to cultivate a family resemblance. So what are those family resemblances? Well, you see them. They're all S's. So I got started, we're just going to go with it, right? First of all, you are to seek. You are to seek, namely, the things that are above. Now, note, this is not a suggestion, it is an imperative. In fact, all of these things are imperatives. They're all commands. Having told us who we are in Jesus, Paul now gives us commands related to how followers of Jesus are supposed to live. And I think it's interesting that Paul's notion of being a seeker and sometimes our notion within evangelical churches of being a seeker are two entirely different things. We sometimes operate with the sort of a strange notion that non-Christians are seekers. But Paul tells us, no, it's not non-Christians who are seekers, it's Christians, right? If you have been raised with Christ, in other words, 
if you are a Christian, seek the things that are above. Part of cultivating a family resemblance means that we are seekers. We are seeking those things that are above. We are seeking those things that reflect where Christ now is, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And we're also then to set. We're to set our minds, verse 2, on the things that are above, not the things that are on earth. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't think about uh, who's playing this afternoon in the NCAA tournament. It doesn't mean that you couldn't, uh, on Thursday night, grieve the fact that Kentucky lost to St. Peter's. It doesn't mean that you can't think about anything having to do with your earthly vocation or your earthly pursuits or passions. No, but Paul is reminding us that our thoughts are not just to be inward or sort of tied to the situation around us. But as Christians, we're to be thinking about what is our ultimate destination. We're to be thinking about those realities that are eternal. See, the things that are above are eternal. They are lasting. They're not going to fade. They're not going to go away. But the things that are on earth will go away. There will be a time in which there will not be March Madness. But there will never be a time in which there is not the new heavens and the new earth. So Paul is saying, hey, part of cultivating this family resemblance is that you're thinking about things that are eternal. Not just sort of inwardly what's going on. Don't just live in your own head. And don't just be obsessed with what's going on around you. But instead, no, set your mind on things that are eternal. In verse 5, he tells us uh, that we are to put to death, therefore, literally, the old King James Version said to mortify or to kill. Put to death what is earthly in you. Now, he's not saying don't have a physical body. He's not saying uh, don't be worried about things that have to do with our current setting, our current circumstances. No, he goes on to define what those things are. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And he reminds us then, but it's, it's in verse 6, it's because of these things that the wrath of God is coming. Now, Paul understood the wrath of God much the same way that uh, Joel would have understood it in our Old Testament reading for this morning. God, as the creator, rules and reigns over all of his creation. God has not just a right, but a moral obligation to judge that which he has created. And Paul says, listen, if you're not putting those things to death, then you are the one who's going to be put to death. Either you kill these things, in the words of the great Puritan John Owen, either you are killing sin, or sin is going to kill you. So how we cultivate a family resemblance is we are slaying those things that would cause the wrath of God to come upon us. And then he tells us in verse 
uh, 7, he reminds us, I used to do these things because you used to live in them. But now, put them away, store them, get rid of them. This is not who you are anymore. Put it away. Get rid of it. And he's going to go on to say, uh, not only are you to put these things away, but there's something else that you need to put on. But he's reminding us then, remember now, this is he thinks of discipleship in terms of what's going on relationally. So in verse 9 he says, do not lie to one another. So think about how you speak. How is it that you're interacting with your brothers and sisters in Christ? We were talking this week um, about just this sermon and then what's coming next. And Amy made the statement. She's like, well, I'm surprised that Paul puts the church next and then family. Right? You would think uh, your family, it should be your relationship with Jesus, your family, and then the church. Because after all, in 21st century America, church is kind of optional. Right? But we have to understand that in Paul's conversion event on the road to Damascus, do you remember what Jesus said to Paul as Paul was persecuting his followers as he was persecuting the church? He didn't say, Paul, why are you persecuting the church? He said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Me. So friends, the reason Paul goes from Jesus to church, and the reason he includes how we speak then to our brothers and sisters in Christ, he says, don't lie to one another. In other words, don't lie to y'all within the church. The reason he can do that is that Christ is so closely identified with his people, or I should say that because our identity is fundamentally found in Christ, lying to our brothers and sisters is the same as lying to the Lord Jesus. So watch how you speak. And then finally, he tells us what we are to put off and what we are to put on. Our old way of life was challenged. Our new way of life is to be changed. So he tells us in the second half of verse 9. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. Now, it's, it's a kind of awkward sentence because both put off and put on are in the perfect tense. So literally it would read like this. And you have put off and keep putting off the old self. And you have put on and keep putting on the new self. And note what he says about it. It's being renewed after the image of its creator in knowledge. Become who you are. Put off the challenged way in which you used to live. And put on the changed way that is really and truly who you are. Act like who you are. Become who you are. This is your God-given identity. In a few moments, we're going to come to the table. And what a wonderful declaration of our identity in Christ the table is. For at the table, most fundamentally, the thing that is said the loudest at the table is not that you and I are believers, but the thing that is said most loudly at the table is spoken not by us at all, but by God. For at the table, God says to us, I am your God and you are my people. That's your identity.
I'm giving it to you. You don't self-determine it. It's been given you in the new covenant. We're also reminded then of what Christ has done for us. That Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed for this identity that has been given to us to be possible. And it reminds us also then, as Paul said, of those things that are yet to come. For this table points us to that great feast that awaits those who are in Christ that we read about in Revelation chapter 19. So friends, as those whose identity is sure and certain, and as those who are seeking to live faithfully, that identity, we're seeking to faithfully become who we are in Christ. He calls us and invites us to come to the table where that identity is, uh, is affirmed and that identity is proclaimed to us by God himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that we're not left to have to sort of play the identity game that so many in our culture are struggling with. Uh, Father, what a complete mess to think that nothing about who I am has been received or predetermined, but i got to make it all up. That just sounds wretched. And so, Father, we bless you for the identity that is ours in your Son, Jesus. We thank you for the indwelling of your Spirit that is the down payment of the inheritance that we are going to receive. And, Father, we thank you that for those who are in Christ, our destiny is not one of judgment but one of glory. We pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.